You're listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. North of Zero by Slip and Mickey's on AO3. Chapter 23, The End Joy? Scully said. Did you, did you say your name was Joy? Mulder turned to look at Scully, who was staring at the girl with a look of amazement. I did, said the girl. Scully's mouth opened and closed once, and then she said, Is your mom's name Patty, by any chance? Joy nodded. I met you, Scully said, when you were a baby. I was in a coffee shop with William and... Scully seemed to run out of words. When I was gone, Mulder asked quietly. She nodded. Mulder looked at the girl curiously. Scully had told him about the encounter. It was the night he had almost come home and been forced to jump off a train and run into the quarry. Your father was NSA, Mulder said. That's right, said Joy. You can do what William can do. Joy looked over at William, who was looking extremely overwhelmed. I think so, the girl said. How? Mulder asked. We don't know for sure, she said. But before my father was an analyst, he was a courier. We think my mother came into contact with a piece of one of the ships when she was pregnant with me. It's all we can piece together at this point. These children are extraordinary, Peter said. What you and Joy will be able to do, William? At that moment, the faceless rebel leaned forward in his chair, and William inhaled quickly, looking startled. What's wrong? Scully asked. William pointed at the faceless rebel. He's talking to me, he said. In my head. Mulder whipped his head around to look at the alien, and then William jumped up and ran from the room running into Murphy, who was on his way in. Scully stood to follow him, but Joy held up a hand. Let me go talk to him, she said, and turned to go. Scully looked over at Mulder, and he reached out and squeezed her hand. The kid probably needed space. Scully hesitantly took her seat. Was it something I said? Murphy asked. Peter rubbed a hand over his face, sighing. What is it, Murphy? he asked. Murphy held up an envelope, ID badges, and sweet assignments for Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. That was fast, said Peter, and waved him in. Murphy dumped the envelope out on the table and pulled out three key cards. Here are your RFID badges. All the locks in the base operate on radio frequency near-field communication systems. We tried swipe cards for a while, but the magnetite wreaked havoc on the magnetized strips. You should have seen Humphreys one time. She got locked in a... Murphy seemed to realize that he was talking too much. Ahem. Anyway, here are your cards. You've been granted pretty high-level access, so make sure to take care of these and keep them on you at all times. Mulder and Scully slid the cards toward themselves, both of them distracted. Murphy started talking about their sweet assignment and how to get there. 
Mulder tried to concentrate on what the soldier was saying, but he only heard half of it, the whole time wondering, hoping that his son would be all right. William ran from the conference room blindly, running into two soldiers just outside the door who made sounds of outrage, but he tripped on past them and kept running. It was all too much, too fast. After making his way down a long corridor, he tried to feel his way towards somewhere without people, casting out a wide mental net, but there were beings everywhere, human and alien. It was useless. Finally, he rounded a corner into yet another hallway, and, finding it empty, he leaned against the wall and slid to the floor, covering his face with his hands. A few minutes later, he felt someone approach and stop in front of him. He dropped his hands and looked up. Joy was standing there in jeans and a green t-shirt with a cartoon planet Earth on it. You okay? She asked. He took a deep breath. I guess. Mind if I sit? She asked, and he gestured to her to go ahead. Joy settled herself down on the ground next to him, hugging her knees to her chest. She looked at him sympathetically for a minute, then finally spoke. It's a lot, she said. When I used to get overwhelmed by it all, I would go find a little corner or a closet and hide in it with a book. It isn't easy being alpha around here. Everyone looking at you like you're some kind of chosen one. No kidding. I'm just saying, I get it. I'm probably the only one who does. They sat in silence for a few moments, and William felt his equilibrium start to slant back to level. You came a long way to get here, Joy said. I came a long way, he said, nodding. I didn't know here was where I was going. What's it like out there? She asked with an innocent curiosity. William thought of the lonely days, the long nights on the cold ground. You don't want to know, he said. Roger that, Bravo. She started picking at a small hole in the knee of her jeans, pulling at the little white fray. Look, I know it sucks, but I'm here too, and you're not alone anymore, and neither am I, and... She stopped when they heard voices coming down the corridor. A couple of refugees walked by, staring at both of them and whispering. William sat there sulkily. Anyway, Joy said, standing up and wiping off the back of her pants. I'll leave you to it. She turned to leave. William wanted to lash out. He felt like the dog Jesse, his leg stuck in a trap. And there Joy stood, reaching out a hand in comfort and friendship trying to release him. You said you found a closet? William finally said, looking up. Is it nearby? Joy smiled at him. Come on, she said, reaching down. He grabbed her hand and let her pull him up. Joy swept her keycard in front of the lock on the unmarked door and the light on the mechanism turned green and clicked open. How many doors can you open with that thing? William asked. Pretty much all of them, Joy said, turning the handle and stepping inside. Being Alpha does have its advantages. William followed her in. It wasn't the broom closet he'd been expecting. The room was unadorned, but there was a small love seat and an end table next to it. He raised his eyebrows at her. Peter talked them into letting me make it more comfortable. 
No one else knows to look here. It's a safe space. You want to sit? William nodded and took the left side, leaving the right for Joy. She sat and turned to him. So, she said. So? Listen, I'm just going to ask, Joy said in a rush. I'm dying to know what all you can do, if your powers are the same as mine. William had been curious about that himself. Okay, he said, moving things with your mind. Easy, she said. With a slight flick of her wrist, the end table next to the small sofa floated up into the air. He smiled. The ships, she said. You can control them? He wrinkled his brow. I can tune into them, he said, and bring them down. You? I've never brought one down, she said. The only ones I ever really had access to belonged to the rebels. But I can, what did you call it? Tuning into them? I can do that. I can fly them. Have you ever done more than one? He asked. Does it make you weak? She nodded. Yes, she said. But that's what Contech is for. Contech? Our engineers, she said, use some of the technology that the rebels shared with us. It helps me connect with more than one without it taxing my strength. It's how we're going to destroy the invader's ships. Cool, he said, wondering what other kind of technology they had. Can you hide from the ships too? Hide from them? Yeah, like go inside yourself when you're about to get scanned. They just pass right by. I don't know, she said, pulling back a little bit. I've never had the chance. I've never been scanned. I've never... They don't really let me leave here. What? Ever? Not without an armed escort. William sat back for a moment. Being on the road by himself had been difficult, stressful, lonely. At times, downright scary. But there was a freedom to it, an independence an agency over his own life and his own decisions that he wouldn't trade for anything. Joy had been taken care of, looked after, hell, downright revered. And yet he felt a little bad for her. How about the super soldiers? She asked him, cutting through his reverie. You can sense them too, right? Like how they feel different, empty, and other people, like you know where they are even if you can't see them. Yes, he said, tuning back into the conversation. I can't tell you how many times that saved my bacon. She laughed. Your bacon? He felt a little self-conscious, but he wasn't going to let her tease him without teasing her back. Yes, my bacon, he said. It's rarefied bacon, Joy. Gifted bacon. Save your bacon? She laughed. Apparently. They both chuckled, and William felt more comfortable. His parents were amazing, but it was so nice being around someone his own age again. He thought briefly of Dan. How about the magnetite, he asked. What about it? You can control it, right? Move it around? Call it? It, I don't know, responds to you. Joy gave him a sideways glance. I have no idea what you're talking about. William could feel his face fall. You can do all that? she asked. He nodded, feeling self-conscious again. 
That's so cool. Yeah, I guess, he said, and she smiled at him. So I guess you can do this too, she said. But he was looking at her, and her mouth didn't move. She smiled at him, and he realized she was talking to him in his mind, like the faceless rebel had. He stood up fast. Hey, it's okay, she said in his head again. It takes some getting used to. He noticed he was breathing hard and tried to calm himself down. He sat down gingerly, looking at Joy. Try to say something back, she said. He concentrated on where her voice was, hovering in the space above his ears. He focused on his thoughts there and said, without opening his mouth, something back. Joy laughed, a short bark that cut through the air. See, she said out loud, you're a natural. We should practice. See how far apart we can be in the base. Some of the rebels, I can talk to them from miles away. Do you like talking to them? He asked. He'd been frightened by some of the things the faceless man had said to him about his role in the fight against the invaders. Yeah, she shrugged, though they don't say much, to be honest. They're quiet, a little weird, but kind. A long silence stretched out in front of them, but it didn't feel awkward. Finally, William looked up at her. How about healing? He asked. Yes, she said, perking up. That's been so nice, though honestly the worst that ever happens to me around here is like a paper cut. Well, it was handy on the road, I have to say, William admitted, and I was able to save my mom, too, which was, it felt like a lifetime ago, and it had only been a matter of hours. Joy looked at him, confused. Your mom? Yeah, he said. She got really hurt by one of the super soldiers, like verge of death. I saved her. Joy had a blank look on her face. Can't you heal other people? He asked her. I she said, looking dumbfounded. I don't know. I've never tried. You want me to go shove somebody down the stairs so you can give it a whirl? He joked. Tempting, she said, but no. Hmm, he said, looking at her. He had an idea. I should have maybe eased my way into that conversation, Peter said. Honestly, Mulder said, standing up. If I was being counted on to save humanity, I think I might want the band-aid ripped off. Should I go after him? Scully said. Her sense was to give him some space and let him come to them. But this was a particular parenting dilemma she hadn't exactly anticipated. Mulder put a hand on her arm. Let's give him some time, he said. Will he be safe here? Mulder asked. He doesn't know his way around. Joy does, said Peter, grunting as he slowly rose from his own chair. She'll look after him. Scully glanced at Mulder, who gave her a reassuring smile. She turned back to Peter. What happened, Peter? she asked. Why the limp? The cane? Ah, said Peter. A story for another time. Come, I have something to show you. He led them, limping slowly down a winding series of hallways and several doorways, using a keycard to get through locked doors. Through various openings, they could see a large control room, banks of servers, various offices, and a small bullpen. This is the command center, he explained, the hub of the resistance. 
Several soldiers walked by them in the same dark fatigues that Team Six had been wearing. Is it controlled by the military? Mulder asked. We're run by civilians, Peter explained, but we have a military branch. U.S., Scully asked. And Canada, Mexico too. Think of us like NASA, a civilian agency with a military arm operating in the same domain. You got an org chart? Mulder asked. I'll see what I can do, Peter said. This way. He went on, opening another locked door that led to what looked like a freight elevator. Sure enough, he pushed a button on the wall, and the large doors opened. The three of them stepped in. How do you power the base? Scully asked, curious how they managed to keep such a massive base running when the electrical grid was a thing of the past. You are a scientist, Dr. Scully. Peter said, smiling down at her. You are aware of how much energy it takes to quickly cross light years of space? Massive amounts, she said. Incalculable amounts. The rebels have afforded us use of one of the drives from their ships. It will keep the base running for the next 10,000 years. They rode the rest of the way down the elevator in a stunned silence. Finally, the elevator stopped. They stepped off and into another long hallway. To the right of the elevator was a computer terminal, and Peter typed a few things into it, staring at the screen intently. The interface was a touchscreen, and he scrolled through several screens before making a satisfied sound. Right then, he said, turning to walk down the hallway. This way, please. He led them down the hallway, a set of stairs, and then another long hallway. Finally, he stopped in front of a door that was marked 817-12 and turned to them with a smile on his face, leaning on his cane. Would you like to knock, or should I? he asked. Scully, tilting her head at him in curiosity, reached out and gave two sharp raps to the door. A moment later, it opened up and a woman looked out, her jaw dropping. Scully? Mulder! To Scully's utter astonishment, Rebecca came flying out of the room and wrapped Scully in an enormous hug. At the sound of voices, a girl came to the door, peering out into the hallway expectantly. Scully noticed her when Rebecca let her go, so that she could launch herself with equal enthusiasm into Mulder's arms. Jordan? Scully said, peering in at the little girl. Is that you? They sat for 20 minutes in Rebecca and Jordan's small quarters, catching up while sipping small cups of coffee. Coffee. Rebecca wanted to hear all about where they'd been and what they'd been up to since she and her daughter had been taken aboard a faceless men's ship in southern Ontario several years before. Peter rose slowly from where he sat, and Scully could tell he was loath to interrupt, but he said very quietly, Pardon me, miss, but I need to take Mulder and Scully from you. There will be a lot of time for catching up in the next few days, I expect. Mulder and Scully said their goodbyes and followed Peter as he wordlessly led them down another few stairways and onto another level. He paused at another door. Courage, friends, he said softly and knocked. A young man opened the door, looking at Peter curiously. Can I help you? he said. Is your grandmother here? Peter asked. The young man nodded and called over his shoulder. Grandma, there's someone here to see you. 
After a moment, the door opened wider, and Scully had to grab onto Mulder's arm so that she didn't pass out. Dana? said the older woman as she came to the door, her voice tremulous with shock. Hi, Mom, Scully said tearfully, gripping onto Mulder so hard that she left marks. So how big is this place? William asked. Big, Joy said, stopping in front of a door. This is you, she said, lifting one side of her mouth in a smile. Home sweet home. He would be staying with his parents, whom he'd been told were expecting him inside. When will I see you again? William asked, lingering in the hallway. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that, William. They've got big plans for us. He rubbed the back of his neck. So I keep hearing. Joy tilted her head at him. Tell you what, she said. This will be good practice. Find me tomorrow morning. In here. At this, she tapped the side of her head where William had heard her telepathically. Tell me where you want to meet me, and I'll be there. At that, she smiled at him, stuck her hands in the back pockets of her jeans, and turned away down the hallway throwing one last look at him over her shoulder. William rested his head against the door for a moment before going in. It was impossible to know what time it was, buried as they were deep below the earth. Mulder hadn't worn a watch in years, being that time was essentially irrelevant in the new world, where dawn and dusk were the only things you needed to keep track of. He rolled over in the bed and wrapped an arm around Scully, who was still asleep. She and William had both crashed hard early after the tumultuous, mentally and physically taxing events of the day before. He wouldn't have been surprised if she slept until noon. Whatever the hell that would be. Pressing a gentle kiss into the softness of her hair, he rolled out of bed and ambled into the bathroom of their two-bedroom suite, one of the larger accommodations on the base, reserved for higher-ranking members of the Alliance, brushed his teeth and washed his face, and marveled at the endless supply of hot water. When he stepped into the living area of the suite, he was surprised to find William sitting on the couch, his eyes closed in concentration. Hey, Mulder said softly, and William looked up at him. Morning, William said. How long have you been up? About an hour, William said. You okay? Mulder asked. He was concerned about his son. They hadn't really had much of a chance to talk about what had happened on the ship and the Bravo savior bomb that Peter had dropped on them yesterday. Not to mention the fact that he had just met another person who seemed to have the same powers and gifts as he did. It was a lot for anyone, probably too much for someone simultaneously going through the turbulent trial of puberty, and 100% not the series of events he would ever want inflicted on his own child. I mean, William started gesturing vaguely, and Mulder had to laugh, chuckling as he sat down next to him. Yeah, Mulder said. I wouldn't be either. Listen, if you need or want to talk about it, your mom and I are both here. I appreciate that, William said. My adoptive parents never really... I'm really glad I found you both. Mulder reached out and squeezed his shoulder. Now, if you don't mind, William went on, 
I'm trying to deal with my current situation by ignoring it completely and attempting to flirt with a pretty girl. Mulder's eyebrows shot up. As a parent, I'm not sure I should endorse that particular plan of action, but as a... Well, don't tell Scully I said this, but go get him, Tiger. William smiled, looking at the floor, and Mulder stood, walking to the small kitchenette to open the few bare cupboards. You hungry? he said, turning to the boy. I think there's a cafeteria somewhere. Yeah, said William. I just have to do something first. With that, he closed his eyes once again and took a deep breath, appearing to slip into some kind of light meditative state. Mulder watched him, and after a moment, he saw the boy's mouth quirk up in a smile. A second later, he opened his eyes, the smile lingering on his face. Okay, I'm ready, he said, standing. Let's go get some food. I'm starving. Joy was waiting in the large cafeteria when they arrived. She was leaning against the wall by the door with her arms crossed and shoved off when they walked in. You said you'd be here ten minutes ago, she said, her tone more sass than annoyance. Sorry, William said, throwing a quick look to Mulder. We got lost. His father sucked his lips into his mouth for a second and then said, I'll leave you two to it, and turned away, making a beeline for the coffee station. Joy made her way over to the line for food. This particular cafeteria, like the suite their family was assigned, was for the higher-ranking members of the Alliance and the staff that worked at the command center nearby. William trailed her like a shadow. You woke me up, she said, sliding a piece of dry toast on her plate, followed by a piece of bacon and then a scoop of scrambled eggs. William took three of everything she did and gave her a smart-ass smile. You told me to practice, he said. Let's make a deal that you don't practice until after seven in the future, huh? She said, sliding her tray further down the row and eyeing the massive pile of food on his plate. I had no idea what time it was, he said, picking up a piece of sausage from his plate and tossing it into his mouth, and then continued with his mouthful. Our suite doesn't have a clock. I'll make sure to get one sent up, she said, shaking her head. Once they were at the end of the line, Joy grabbed silverware and a napkin and slid onto a booth at an empty table where William slid in across from her. She stared once again at his tray. Are you seriously going to eat all that? She asked. William shoveled a forkful of eggs into his mouth. A savior needs to keep up his strength he replied. She took a dainty sip of water and looked prim. You're certainly in a better mood today. He took a snappy bite of bacon. Well, you know how I feel about bacon. Save your bacon? Permission granted. Joy finally snorted in laughter, and William felt ten feet tall. He chanced to look at his father, who had settled at a table about twenty feet away, and he had his nose buried in a large mug of coffee, but William could see the smile he was wearing in the crinkle of his eyes. A large shadow appeared at the side of their table then, and they both turned to find Peter standing next to them, wearing a small smile and holding a tray in one hand and his cane in the other. "'Good morning,' he said, and they both mumbled quiet good mornings back. 
William, I feel as though I must apologize to you, he went on. My delight in seeing your parents again, and in having you arrive here in time for humanity's greatest triumph. He stopped. I'm doing it again, he sighed, scrunching his face in ignominy. William, I am sorry. Let me leave it at that. William felt his face color in embarrassment, but smiled up at the man, shooting a look to Joy. It's okay, Peter, he said. I understand, and I have a way you can make it up to me. Thank you all for coming, Peter said, as Mulder, Scully, and William walked back into the conference room, where they had been debriefed the day before. Peter was already in the room, along with Joy, Humphreys, a faceless rebel, and an older man who looked like Paul Sorbino, who was dressed in the dark fatigues of the Alliance's military unit. Joy gave William a little finger wave as he slid into a chair in between his parents, but her face was grim. I'd like to introduce you to General Sidney, said Peter, nodding at the military man. While I'm one of the scientific leads here, the general is the head of operations on base. William followed his parents' lead and nodded at the man. Welcome, the general said. When Captain Humphreys told me who you were, I admit I almost fell out of my chair. Humphreys gave a clipped smile and leaned back in her seat, her gaze resting uncomfortably on William, who shifted uneasily. I would like to give you all time to acclimate yourself to life here at Base Zero and to reconnect with some of the friends and family you've been reunited with. William heard his mother take a deep inhale from beside him. But I'm afraid time isn't something that's on our side. The general rose to his feet and pressed a fob that he was holding in his hand. A large screen lit up on the wall opposite the wall of bedrock. Everyone turned their attention to it as a map of the world appeared, several large cities of red populating parts of the map intermittently. We've gotten reports from bases 3, 7, and 12 of large upticks in enemy ship activity in their sectors. Abductions, killings, you name it, the general said. There's also rumors coming in from bases 2 and 9 of mass sweeps of some of the larger refugee camps and towns where people collect to trade. The mood in the room took on a bleak, tense energy. The enemy is on the move, the general said, and the time to act is now. He turned to Humphreys. Captain? Captain Humphreys stood and held on to the back of her chair. We know what Alpha is capable of, she said, but Bravo is an unknown quantity. William swallowed thickly and could feel both of his parents shifting uncomfortably in their seats. We'd like to run him through a battery of tests. No, Scully said, interrupting her. Absolutely not. Humphrey shot a look to Peter, who leaned forward. They would be harmless tests, Scully, Peter said. His forehead crinkled in empathy, just to see what William's aptitudes are. I would run them myself. You and Mulder are, of course, welcome to sit in, if that would be agreeable to William. William thought nothing he'd heard in the last few minutes sounded the least bit agreeable, but he shot a look to Joy, who gave him a tiny nod. It's okay, he heard her say in his head. I'll be there, too. William cleared his throat when he realized all the eyes in the room were on him. 
Scully was looking at him intently, and he knew what she was thinking. If he said no to anything, she'd go to war on his behalf. No, it's okay, he said. I'll do it. Humphreys inhaled and gave him a quick, encouraging nod when Mulder leaned forward. All right, so you test him, his father said. What then? I assume you have a plan in place and have since long before we arrived here. What is it? That's classified, barked Humphreys. Captain, Peter said, an edge of scolding creeping into his voice. Humphreys looked to General Sidney, who sat down and leaned forward on the table, lacing his fingers together. We have a device, the general said, that will amplify Alpha's powers over the ships. It will network all ships on the planet, and Alpha, and Bravo as well, if his powers are so inclined, will use their psychokinetic abilities to bring the ships down. All of them. How many ships are we talking? Mulder said. Hundreds, Humphrey said, her voice clipped. No, Scully said again. I've seen what bringing down just four of those ships did to my son. It almost killed him. The device we've created with the rebels mitigates much of the damage done, Peter began, but Scully interrupted him. These are children. You cannot possibly expect them to... She shook, she shook her head, worked up. Where's Patty? Where's this girl's mother? Scully pointed at Joy. There's no way she has consented to... She's dead, Joy said in an even tone of voice. Everyone in the room stopped and looked at her. And you're right. She probably never would have let me put myself at risk like this. But she's gone. And it's my choice now. These are my powers. I don't know why I have them. I don't know why William has them. But I'm going to use them to help people. That's my decision, and I think it should be William's, too. Everyone's eyes shifted to him. He took a breath and then nodded slowly. I'd be a pretty shit person if I let her stick her neck out for humanity and I just watched. Plus, I can't let her take all the credit for saving the world. He saw the corner of Joy's mouth twitch. General Sidney held up a hand. Let's run our battery of tests first. If William is what we all hope he is, then we'll have to run a trial on the device. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Mulder sighed from beside him, and William felt his father put his hand on his shoulder. Then let's get ahead of ourselves even more, Mulder said. Let's say you're able to bring down all the alien ships. What then? There are still how many super soldiers out there? Do you have a plan to get rid of them as well? That's trickier, Peter said, as you know how impervious the soldiers are. We've run some scenarios where we send out strike teams to hunt them down. We have a few prototypes for magnetite-infused bullets and IEDs, but they're as yet untested. Does Peter or any of the military personnel know about your gift with magnetite? Joy said in William's head. No, he replied. Don't tell them, she said. Not yet. Huh, said Mulder, leaning back and rubbing his hand across his face. One thing at a time, said the general, standing. Carmichael, run a full battery on Bravo, today. I'd like the results as soon as you have them. 
Peter nodded, and General Sidney excused himself with Humphreys on his heels. The faceless rebel stood silently and left the room, too. "'Well,' said Peter after a moment, "'I suppose we should get started if everyone here is ready.' "'Though,' he went on, turning to William, "'I believe I owe you a favor first. William glanced at Joy and then looked back at Peter. "'We can kill two birds with one stone,' he said. "'My favor can be our first test.' Peter laid back on the examination table in the small medic clinic within the command center, looking like an adult lounging on a toddler's bed. Mulder and Scully stood against the wall of the room, watching curiously. "'What happened, Peter?' Scully asked as Joy and William stood on either side of their friend, ready to get started. "'You never did tell us.' "'Pollocks,' the big man said. Kicked me about a week out from the base when I first traveled here. I assume he broke my leg. By the time I got here, the healing process had already started. And it didn't heal right, as I had to spend more than a week on a horse. Mulder winced from where he stood. That must have been agony, he said. And Pollock's got to hear about it, Peter said. And he is still the last to get an apple. William looked up over the big man's torso at Joy, who was looking a little nervous. It's okay, he said to her in his mind. I'll walk you through it. Are you ready? he said to Peter. Peter put a meaty paw on his arm. I am ready, William. William nodded and moved behind the big man's head. Close your eyes, he said, and he put his two hands on Peter's temple. I'm just going to see if I can feel what's going on in there, William said to Joy out loud. Then I want you to try. Joy nodded silently. William reached inside. He felt along the pathways of Peter's body to the knot of bone and the messy, complicated weaving of nerves in the man's leg. He listened quietly for a moment, trying to suss out what Peter's body wanted him to do. Then he felt it. Okay he said. Come here, Joy. She came up silently and stood next to him. Put your hands on him. The temples work best for me, but it might be different for you. You know that feeling inside of you, the healing place? Her brow nodded. Find it inside of you, and then extend it into him. Okay, she said quietly and reached out and put her hands on Peter's head, closing her eyes. Okay, I think I'm there, she said after a moment. William reached out and put his hand on Peter as well. He could feel Joy's presence. Go inside, he said. Pull the healing place with you. William started to feel resistance. He looked over to Joy, and her brow was creased. Peter, you're fighting her, William said. Be with her. Be with her so she can help you. He felt the path smooth out, felt Joy moving along. I can feel it, she said, a little excited. Tune into his body. It'll tell you what it wants you to do. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. Good. William could feel Peter's body working in conjunction with Joy. He pulled his hands away from the man and stood back, watching as Joy continued to work. 
The big man's eyes were running back and forth under his closed lids like he was in a state of REM sleep. After a moment, Joy inhaled and opened her eyes, and she stepped back, her hands falling away from Peter's head. Peter's own eyes fluttered open, and he took a deep breath, and then swung his legs over the side of the exam table, tentatively putting weight down on one and then the other. A moment later, he gave an experimental little hop, and then a full-on jump in the air. He shouted triumphantly, and then whirled around, picking Joy up in his arms and twirling her easily. When he set her down, he turned to William and grabbed him by the face and planted an enormous kiss on William's forehead. William nearly fell over backward. A wonderkin, he said, his eyes alight with mirth. Miracles, the both of you. William chanced to look to his parents, who were looking on, both wearing small, proud smiles. Mulder and Scully watched the testing process through a glass partition. This is fascinating, Mulder said, though it makes my Knicks t-shirt trick with Brooklyn seem kind of stupid. Scully managed to smile, but didn't laugh, keeping her eyes on their son. The whole thing made her nervous. She'd known that the boy was special since he was an infant, and had always worried that his gifts would be found out and exploited. She just hadn't counted on their being exploited to save humanity. Even if she could protect him from that, it didn't seem right to try. For his part, she knew that while Mulder was concerned for their son, and more than a little worried about the impending showdown with the invading alien force, he was also impressed by the breadth and scope of the operation giddy to be once again surrounded by the tedious enforced order of a lumbering bureaucracy. Scully, having fully experienced the freedom of fending for herself for the last several years, felt held down by its thumb, the full weight of the mountain that surrounded them, pressing heavily on her psyche. "'What do you think about this contact?' she asked. "'I don't know enough about it to have an opinion,' Mulder said." watching as William and Joy sat in front of a computer interface, the screens in front of them showing them objects at various distances within and without the base, testing to see how far their telekinetic powers reached. Am I worried it won't be able to protect them from the effects of the ships like at Marlowe's farm? Yes. But I'm also worried about the reports of the aliens escalating their attacks. There's no question I want my son to survive this with his life but I'd also like to be able to hand him a life worth living, a planet worth living on. I've said it to you before, Scully, and I have to go on believing it. Maybe there's hope. The tests had gone well, at least according to General Sidney. William seemed to be what they thought he was, what they needed him to be. They were planning to run a test of the contact first thing the next morning, just a quick test on the rebel ships to make sure the technology... Peter and his team had developed would shield Joy and William from the worst effects of controlling them. The rebels wouldn't network their own ships with the invaders until the actual operation, thus ensuring the element of surprise. Once that initial test was run, in and out, the general assured them they would plan their operation, and the sooner the better. My only concern, William said, feeling odd speaking up in front of an entire conference table full of adults and high-ranked military officials, is that in the past, when I've brought down the ships, it was only temporary. 
They were always able to get back up in the air an hour or two later. We need them to be completely disabled, don't we? Yes, General Sidney said. On the aptitude test we ran today, it did appear that you had less control over the ships than Alpha. Her manipulation skills scored a lot higher. What does that mean for your operation? Mulder asked. It means that Alpha will have to take the lead, the general said. The simulations we've run have all worked before Bravo arrived. We're only counting on him for backup and to perhaps give a boost to Alpha. If Joy thinks she can do this, we're moving ahead with the operation. I can do it, General, Joy said, looking small from where she sat in between two full-grown men. Mulder leaned down into William's space. A boost? he asked quietly. William turned to him and spoke in a similarly low tone. Today during the test, if Joy lifted something with her mind to a certain height, let's say I was able to come in and help her lift it higher, you know, like a boost. You can network your powers? Mulder asked. Yeah, William said, so far. If that's all, Bravo, the general said loudly. William looked up and found the room staring at him. Sorry, sir. Yeah. Then we're moving forward with the ship trial tomorrow at 0800. Everybody get some rest tonight. Someone had been kind enough to send dinner up to their suite, and they sat at the small table in the kitchenette, scraping around what remained on their plates. You didn't eat much, Mulder said to him. You okay? William looked up to find both of his parents looking at him. A little nervous, I guess. If it makes you feel better, I trust Peter implicitly, Mulder said. I'm sure it'll be fine. It's okay to be nervous, though, Scully said. I'm nervous for you. William sat back and studied his fingernails. I miss the cabin, he said after a minute. It was quiet there, peaceful. You can't turn a corner here without running into somebody. It's certainly different, Scully said, reaching forward to take a sip from the water glass in front of her. But it turns out there are people here that we know. Some from after. But some. William looked up at her. My mother is here, she said, unable to keep a smile from her face. And my nephew, your grandmother and cousin. They'd like to see you. Would you like to meet them? You won't remember her, but your grandmother used to look after you. Yeah, sure, he said automatically. But there was what felt like a bubble inside of him, a churning, anxious feeling that was rising up in his chest and squeezing the air out of his lungs. He stood from the table. Is it okay if I go for a walk, he said. I've got some nervous energy and I need to... He shook out his hands and Mulder nodded at him. Yeah, his father said, grabbing onto Scully's hand from where he sat. Of course. William grabbed a generic base sweatshirt someone had given him and his ID card. I'll be back, he said, and walked out. Joy opened the door in pajama pants and a tank top, her hair in a messy bun on the top of her head. This is the second time you've woken me up, she said. At least when the rebels talk to me in my head, they do it during business hours. Grab a coat, William said, trying not to look at the soft round skin of her shoulder or the way her clavicle arched toward her chest like Cupid's bow. Why? Just get a coat, 
he said, and, you know, shoes. She gave him a skeptical look, but grabbed a jacket that was hanging on a hook near the door and slipped her bare feet into a tatty pair of sneakers that sat on a mat underneath the hook. She stepped out into the hallway and closed her door, shoving her hands deep into the pockets of her coat. Where are we going? she asked. Out, he said. What do you mean, out? William started walking, turning around and walking backwards for a moment while she stood there looking at him. You got that key card, Alpha? She narrowed her eyes at him as he walked by. Why? He turned around again. You coming or what? His voice was cocksure and playful, but inside he was all nervous energy, hoping against hope that she'd follow him. When they arrived at the large iron door that led to the outside, he turned to her in surprise. Wow, he said. I figured there'd be a guard or something. What are we doing here, William? You told me that they don't really let you leave here without an armed escort. Yeah, so I'm taking you out. She took a half step back. I don't know. It's safe, he said. You can feel as well as I can that there's nobody out there. No threat. She licked her lips, but didn't keep walking away, which he took as a good sign. We shouldn't. I can't take it in here anymore, Joy, he said. It's so loud. Don't you just want to, I don't know, breathe? He saw it the second he had her. He ran his keycard over the lock, but it beeped and turned red. He turned to her. Hand it over, he said. If we get caught, you can tell them I made you. She stared at him for a second like she was about to tell him that no one would believe that. But then she reluctantly placed her keycard in his outstretched hand. One swipe and the lock turned green and he could hear the mechanism detach from the big iron door. Being Alpha has its advantages, he said, repeating the words she'd said to him the day before. She gave him a half-smile. Come on, he said, and led her out into the night. It was one of those clear nights, the kind where the air feels lighter and brisker, where just one pull of it into your lungs makes you want to thump your chest and stomp your feet. The stars were out in force, pinpricks of brilliance in the giant purple dome of the heavens. There was a small and steep rocky path up the sloping hillside just to the left of the base door, and William began climbing it. About 50 yards up, it leveled out into a rocky outcropping that looked out over the valley that spread out below the mountainside, the vista lit up by a bright, waxing moon. William walked to the edge and looked over it, and then sat, letting his feet hang down into the space. Joy sat down tentatively next to him, peeking down below them. They could just see the edge of the big iron door. I'm not sure how I feel about heights, she said. I'd recommend not looking down then. Noted, she said, and then leaned back, resting her hands behind her. After a moment, she let out a deep, cleansing breath. Wow, she said. It's really beautiful out here, especially without a quartet of nudgy himbos who smell like ballastol and B.O. William snorted a laugh. Himbos? Not really, she chuckled. They're actually pretty smart and cool. 
except maybe Travers. I don't know how he made it this far. I think he ate paint chips as a kid. The night settled between them, and they sat, quiet and contemplative. Finally, he turned to her. So how'd you feel about today? The tests? She shrugged. Seems like we work pretty well together. Yeah, he said, and the silence stretched for a bit longer. Then he noticed as her posture changed and her shoulders slumped. What's wrong? he asked, and she took a minute before she answered. I've been thinking about the healing, she said quietly, and I'm wondering how many people I could have helped and didn't. My mother died a year ago, and I can't help but think, what if I could have saved her? Somewhere in the distance, an owl hooted, its call low and forlorn. What did she die of? William asked, flashing on the sight of his adoptive parents laying dead on their porch. They said it was an aneurysm. Quick? Yeah, she said, looking away. Some people we can't save, Joy, he said, thinking of Dan. We do the best we can, and we try to live life in spite of it. She turned to look at him, her gaze curious and intent. How old are you again? Fifteen, he answered. She shook her head, smiling in spite of her mood. But an old fifteen, he went on, and bumped his shoulder into hers companionably. She chuffed a small laugh. He looked at her a long minute. Can I ask you something? He said. When we were talking about our powers before, I didn't... Peter said you knew I was out there. Yeah, she said. I could feel you. Could you not feel me? No, he said. Well, maybe? She lifted her shoulders up until they were just below her ears and then released them, the nylon of her jacket whispering a slick susurrus. It feels like, I don't know, like a string connecting you and someone else. Like a string pulled tight. And the closer you get to it, the easier, the better it all feels. I call it my homing beacon, he said. She laughed. I suppose that's as good a name as anything. I only ever felt it with my parents, though, he said, until until I brought that ship down near zero. Then I felt it with you. He looked up at her, and she had a queer look in her eye. I think, she started, I think you only have it with someone you have a connection to, someone you want to be with. Your parents probably wanted you to be with them, right? Well, I wanted to meet you. I, I wanted you to be with me. Huh he said, thinking that maybe it made a weird kind of sense. You knew I was out there, he said. She nodded. The rebels told me. Once I knew you were out there, all I wanted to do was meet you, talk with you. It's hard being different like this. Even when it's a good different, it's hard being special. He thought about it for a moment. If he'd known there was someone else like himself out there, he knew he would have felt the same way. So you brought me here. I guess I did. He looked over at her, 
at the way the moon shone on the dark of her hair and suddenly felt the connection to her again, the homing beacon turning itself back on. She gazed up at him, a look of surprise on her face. He reached out and took her hand, squeezed it, and he felt settled again. He felt home. There was sweat on his lip. There were butterflies in his stomach. There were a bunch of tough-looking men and women standing behind a partition 20 feet behind him. In front of him, there was a small, hand-sized metallic ball the color of freshly mined coal and a large computer readout on a huge screen set into the wall at the front of the room. Next to him was Joy. Peter was tinkering with something in a large console to their left, with a faceless rebel sitting next to him. General Sidney stood at his shoulder. William stole a look behind him and found his parents standing off to the side of the room, huddled close together. His father looked stoic. His mother looked tense. Nevertheless, she gave him a small, reassuring smile, and his dad nodded at him once. You got this, it seemed to say. He nodded back and turned to the screen in front of him. The readout on the large screen showed the rebel ships spread out across the globe. The goal of the morning's exercise was to test the contact, which Peter had assured them would, in theory, link all of the ships to one central point which Joy could control. Having her focus on essentially one ship should mitigate the drain on her powers and also, if it worked, bring down the entire alien fleet in one go. William was on standby for support and the general hoped to learn exactly what was involved so that when they went forward with the actual operation, he would be able to assist. Okay, said Peter, standing from the console. The platform is up and operational. Can we get a system check, please? Various different people did a check-in from around the room, starting with the rebels sitting to the left of Peter, who merely nodded. Comms is a go. Security is a go. Sequencer is a go. Matrix monitoring is a go. Alpha is a go. Joyce said, and William, feeling awkward, followed up with, Bravo is a go. All systems go, Peter said, looking up at General Sidney. Let's roll, said the general. Alpha, on you. Take it away, Joy. Joy reached out and put her hand on the small metallic ball in front of her, and William could feel a minor shift in the energy around them. He kept his eyes on the screen ahead. Okay, said Joy. I'm connected. Easy peasy. I'm going to try to move the fleet first. I just want to get a feel for it. Roger that, said a man behind them. Joy's eyes fluttered shut. Up on the screen, William watched as the ships on the screen all moved to the east at the same time in a synchronized movement. Looking good, came another voice. Alpha, how are you feeling? asked Peter. Good, Joy said, her eyes still shut. Really good. Great, said Peter. See if you can get in sync with the ship's systems. Bravo, can you walk her through how you would bring one down? William nodded. Okay, he said. To me, the ships felt like an interlocking system of tubes or something. Tunnels, does that make sense? Yeah, said Joy, a series of conduits. Right, said William. Now find a hub. There should be a focal point where they all converge. Got it. Block the energy running through it, 
It's just like putting your hand through a stream of water. I see what you mean, Joy said. General, do you want me to try to... At that moment, there was a loud beeping from the console behind the partition where most of the crew sat. Sir, we have a problem, said one of the soldiers. William looked up at the screen. All of the rebel ships, which appeared as green blips on the global readout, continued to move in synchronicity. But William saw several red blips appear on the screen as well, and then a few more. All of them were moving together with the greens. Shouts of alarm started from the various stations around the control room, and men and women began talking over each other. William just looked up at the screen, and faster than he could keep track of them, hundreds of red blips appeared. Enemy ships have entered the Matrix. William glanced at Joy, who swayed a bit in place, her hands still on the metallic grip. Rebel One, what's happening? shouted the general. The room erupted into chaos. The invader ships had somehow locked into the system, linking up with the rebel ships. There's so many, Joy said from next to him, her voice low and shaky. Can you focus on one? William asked her. The room behind them was a loud murmur, and William tuned them all out. Joy, pick one. Let the contact do the rest. Just focus on one. Her posture improved though her brow was knit in concentration. Okay, she said. Yeah, okay, that's better. General, shouted a voice above the chaos. They're doing something to our system. Peter stood from his console. Sir, he said, the Matrix is showing signs of failure. If we're ever going to do this, it has to be now. William realized what they were saying. This was more than a trial run now. If their plan to bring the ships down and stop the invading aliens permanently was to move forward, it was now or never. His stomach leapt. The general stood. Alpha, he said. Joy clenched her jaw and then answered, Yes, sir. This is no longer an exercise. It is a full-on operation. We've discussed what this would look like. Do it, Alpha. Bring them all down. Shit, she murmured so that only William could hear her, and then said loud and clear, Yes, sir. William watched as she leaned a little forward in space, moving both hands to clench the metallic sphere in front of her. She was mentally bearing down. William could feel it. But something was off. Something's wrong, she whispered. What is it? They won't go down, she said, and William could tell she was talking directly to him. Did you try the... Yes, she said. Will, they're doing something. They're fighting back somehow. I can't figure out what's happening. Will reached out and grabbed the sphere in front of him, but all he felt was a garbled mess. When he looked back at Joy, one of her hands was flailing out in the air, reaching for him. He shot his hand out and grabbed on. He was with her instantly and could feel the chaos. It was like turning on the radio and finding the volume had been turned all of the way up. One, what do I do? He found Joy was in the middle of a telepathic exchange with one of the faceless rebels. You know what to do, Joy, the man said calmly. They won't go down. William was with her and could feel that she was in the hub of the ship's conduit, but she was right. There was a resistance there. 
he sent a little bump of energy into it too, and it seemed to push back even harder. He tried something else, tried going with the flow of the ship instead of against it. The energy gave way, rushing through the circuits of the ship. Go up, he said. What? Joy said. If you can't bring them down, send them up. If she couldn't interrupt the flow of the ships to bring them down, she could work with the flow and fly them, control them, and either way, take them out of the sky. There was a pulsing blackness on the edge of his mind. Whatever the aliens were doing, he could feel the resistance growing. You have to do it now, Joy, he said. Send them up. Up where? Into your solar system's sun, the rebel said calmly. William realized then that if Joy destroyed the alien ships, she would also be destroying and killing the rebel allies that were on their own ships. Initiate the hyperdrive. Your sun is 8.3 light years away. It will be over in moments. Wait, William interjected. It's the only way, the rebel insisted. This was always a suicide mission for us, Joy. Listen to me. Do it now. William could feel Joy bear down, felt the flow of energy from the ships, the flow of the energy from Joy. There was a singular point of contact with the ship through the technology in her hand. But it was flagging from where she was holding on to William, like a flag snapping in the wind. Squeezing her hand, he reached out with his other one and grabbed the sphere in front of him. And that was all it took. A potent volt of energy clicked between them, and he felt a massive surge of power. The ship they had chosen, all the ships, rocketed upwards. Scully watched as more and more of the red dots appeared on the large readout screen at the front of the control room. Alarms started going off. She pushed herself off the wall. Mulder, what's happening? Mulder was moving forward next to her, his eyes locked onto the screen. The ships, he said. All the alien ships are entering the, the network. Scully's eyes flew down to her son, who was standing next to Joy, staring up at the screen. Jesus, Mulder whispered, watching it all unfold. There were shouts from every station. The general was barking orders, and then Scully got a sense of what was going on. Oh my God, Mulder, she said. They're going to do it now. They're going to have to do it right now. The rebel ships, Mulder started. In order to network the ships with the contech, said a voice from beside them. Scully looked over, and Humphreys was standing close her eyes locked onto the screen. We had to network all of the ships across the globe, so we're not just disabling the shifter ships, but the faceless men's too. If their ships aren't also in the air, the linking system won't be able to connect them all. It's all or nothing. And they have to do it now? Yeah, she said, squinting at the screen. Something's wrong. They have to do it now. Scully watched as Joy seemed to struggle, then her hand shot out, and William took it. A moment later, William reached out and took the contact handle that was in front of him, and she felt a slight tremor run through the floor. Then, all of the ships, red and green, every single one, went flying off the screen. A moment later, Joy and William both collapsed to the floor. William came to consciousness with something tickling his nose. He reached up to scratch and found a tube, 
a cannula feeding him oxygen, resting on his face. Startled, he pulled it off his face and sat bolt upright. It's okay, it's okay, said a voice from nearby. Mulder! William looked around and found Scully sitting next to him. He was in a hospital bed, in a small room that looked like the infirmary room they had been in to heal Peter. His dad opened the door from the outside and looked startled to see him awake. Will, he said, stepping quickly into the room. William looked down at himself. He was in a hospital gown and covered with a light blanket. Where's Joy? he asked, feeling panicky. The last thing he remembered was, she's in a room next door. Scully said calmly, rising from her chair and reaching for his arm. She put a finger to the pulse on his wrist and looked up at a small clock on the wall opposite his bed. Is she okay? She's still out, said Mulder, lifting up a calming hand. I gotta go see her, William said, swinging his legs over the side of the bed. His mother squeezed his wrist where she was holding it and spoke in the most authoritative voice he'd ever heard. You'll do no such thing, William, she said, standing up. You have been unconscious for three hours. Mom, he said, indignant. Mulder stood for a moment, his mouth open, his gaze shifting back and forth between them. Okay, that was amazing, he said, but I'm going to have to side with your mom on this one. I feel fine, William said. I feel better than I ever have. He meant it. He felt like he could chew carbon and spit diamonds. Just then, the door to the room opened and a small, older woman took a step in, pulling on her earring nervously. Is this a bad time? she asked. His grandmother. He knew it instantly. The resemblance was remarkable. Her body type was the exact same as his mother's, with the same face shape and blue eyes. Her nose pulled slightly more at the nostrils, but everything else about her was so surprisingly like Scully that he immediately pulled back his indignation and stared at the woman. Um, no, he said, surprised to find he actually meant it. It's fine. The older woman smiled and turned to a kid who came in behind her, at least a foot and a half taller than her, but only, upon second glance, three or four years older than William himself. Hey, the older kid said. Hey, replied William and, realizing that he had his bare legs hanging over the side of the bed, swung them back up and covered them with the blanket. Scully looked at him for a moment, and then turned to the two newcomers. Hi, Mom, she said, and walked forward to press a kiss into the older woman's cheek. William, this is your cousin Matthew, and your grandma Scully. Hello, he said, Neither of the Vandekamps had had living parents, so he was surprised and more than a little pleased to actually have a grandmother. I can't tell you how happy I am to see you again, William, she said, stepping forward. And the fact that I'm meeting you as a grown person while you're sitting in a hospital bed is a true testament to the fact that you are your parents' child. She laughed and all the tension in the room instantly broke. Matthew stepped forward and held out a hand. Matthew, William said, shaking the kid's hand. He had a strong grip, and his hand was warm and dry. Matt, he said. Will, William said, nodding. So you're the enigmatic Bravo, Matt said, as Will released his hand. 
Matt was tall with sandy hair and had the same eyes as his grandmother and Scully, but there was a charming, rakish spark to them that put William instantly at ease. But there was a charming, rakish spark to them that put William instantly at ease. What, you didn't get a cool code name? Will asked. I thought they just handed them out. Well, on a scale of importance, I'd be Zulu, but I was recently promoted to KP duty, so you never know. William smiled. We won't stay long, his grandmother said. We just wanted to check in and welcome you. Well, this family has a long and grand tradition of hospital visits, Mulder said from where he was leaning against the wall. We couldn't leave you out of the fold. His grandmother gave a rueful smile. William, she said, when you're on your feet again, we'd love to celebrate having you back and, of course, celebrate today's accomplishment. How would you feel about coming and having dinner in our suite? It's more like a cell, said Matt, and his grandmother swatted at him. We're very lucky to have it, she said. Bring Alpha, too, if you'd like. Joy, I mean. I bet I can get something special from the cafeteria. What's your favorite food? Lasagna, William answered after a moment, committing himself to going. Perfect, she said, and then stole a look at Scully, who had resettled at William's bedside with a stern look on her face. Well, we'll let you get your rest. Matt reached out and gently pushed his shoulder. Can you talk to somebody, Bravo? He said quickly. Get us an upgrade? Matthew. Coming, Grams, Matt said but then made a telephone sign with his hand and a big thumbs up as he backed out of the room. Before the door had finished closing on their exit, Humphrey stuck her head in. Alpha is awake, she said to Scully. William yanked the leads off his chest, slid out of bed, and was out of the room before his mother could protest, which she did, loudly. But he was already walking into the room next door. Peter was standing at the end of the bed and beamed when he saw William who had eyes only for Joy, who was sitting up, looking at him expectantly. Hey, she said, the hero of the hour. You did all the work, William said, suddenly feeling self-conscious that he was only wearing a flimsy hospital gown. After a quiet beat, Peter cleared his throat and excused himself. William lowered himself into the chair next to the bed. He could see his mother hovering outside in the hallway. How are you feeling? he asked. Weirdly good, Joy answered. You? Same. Peter told me that according to the doctors here, they think maybe our joint power overloaded our systems and that we should be fine. Then can you tell that to my mom because she's doing some serious helicopter doctoring? I think she's worried I'm going to drop dead. It's nice that you have someone to worry about you. Her voice sounded small. I'm sorry. It's fine, Joy sighed and then reached up and yanked the cannula out of her own nose, pulling it down so that it rested on her chest. So, what happened? she asked, and he knew exactly what she was talking about. The alien ships appearing suddenly, their resistance to the two kids' powers. I don't know. Maybe after I brought them down a few times, they'd figured out how I did it, how to stop me. Well, she said, pushing her head back against the pillows behind her. We still did it. Yeah, we did, said Will, though it felt like a hollow victory. Something wasn't right, though, she said, giving voice to a feeling he hadn't wanted to.
You know what I mean? What we did should feel like a win. Everybody else around here is celebrating. But something else is happening, and I don't know what it is. Their safety felt perilous and teetering, like Hiawatha cresting the Tequamanon. William reached out and took her hand. Yeah, he said. I feel it too. The energy around the base for the next few days was jubilant, but William seemed distant and reluctant to accept the many congratulations he was offered. Joy, too, was a little remote, and William spent a majority of his time with her, either in their suite or off somewhere inside the base. Scully was concerned about what exactly they'd been through, though physically they both seemed to be fine. Talking with them, they explained as best they could what had happened when they destroyed the alien ship's fleet, and all they could say was that before they'd passed out, they each felt a great surge of power. She'd run every test available to her at the base and could find nothing wrong with either of them. Nevertheless, she couldn't help but worry. Tonight, they were on their way to her mother's small quarters for the dinner that she'd been excitedly planning since meeting William in the infirmary. It was wonderful to see her mother in a joyous flurry, and Scully suspected that she was thrilled to once again have a family to fuss over, and thought that Matthew, too, probably appreciated not being the sole object of her maternal attention. William was fidgeting nonstop with the cuffs of his hoodie while they all made their way down, and Joy finally snapped when they stepped off the elevator. "'Will you knock that off, William?' she said, reaching forward, and yanking one of his sleeves out of his hands and up his forearm. God, you're making me twitchy. Seriously, kid, Mulder said as he trailed behind the three of them. Are you okay? William cracked his neck as they walked. Sorry, he said. Just restless, I guess. Scully pulled up in front of her mother's door. Well, she said, let's all just try to relax and enjoy ourselves, all right? I'm pretty sure my mom has pulled out all the stops for tonight. William took a deep breath, and suddenly the hood of his sweatshirt went flying up over his head, and the strings were yanked tight by invisible hands. He made a sound of surprise and pulled the hood off, shooting a look of amused irritation at Joy. All right, all right, he said, and Scully glanced at Joy, who was standing innocently with her hands behind her back, looking prim and satisfied. Scully shook her head and knocked on the door. It swung wide open an instant later to reveal Matthew, who stared at them and impishly said, Thank God you're here. She's out of control. He was lightly shoved out of the way a second later by Margaret Scully, who was beaming and dressed in a light blouse that Scully vaguely recognized. Her mother pressed a kiss to her cheek and ushered them all inside. It was a tight fit in the small space most of the room having been taken up by a large table and chairs that looked like they'd been brought in from one of the cafeterias. The rest of the furniture, a small sofa and two chairs, had been pushed back against the walls. "'Wow, Mrs. Scully,' said Mulder, and Scully turned to see what he was looking at. The table was set beautifully with actual china and a tablecloth and a smattering of small votive candles that sizzled and guttered when she swung closed the door." Now, Fox, she said, chiding him a little. I think we're pretty far past the formality of Mrs. Scully, aren't we? Mulder gave her a muggy smile. And yes, she went on, looking at the table proudly. I wanted to make it nice. 
Mags here called in every favor owed her on fifteen levels, Matthew said, pulling out a chair at the far end of the table and gesturing for Scully to sit. Please, he said, have a seat or one small sneeze is going to knock us all over like bowling pins. Everyone squeezed in guts and shuffled around as her mother got her guests all situated and seated where she wanted them. And then Maggie took a step into the kitchenette and reached into the tiny refrigerator to reveal a bottle of champagne with a flourish, the glass the heavy green chunk in her hands. The foil on the top reflected off the candlelight in a dull glow. Scully hadn't seen one in years. Mulder, who was sitting at the head of the table, stared for a moment before his mouth dropped open. How on earth did you manage that? Her mother demurely turned her head away and began removing the foil with practiced care. I may have run into General Sidney in the infirmary when we visited you, she said, and explained who I was and what I was planning. She flirted, Matthew translated, shamelessly. Oh, stop it, she said, affectionately shoving him in the shoulder. Now open this for me while I get the glasses. I'm just saying, Matt went on, twisting off the mousselette on top of the bottle. Grandma has a way with military men. She says jump, and they say yes, ma'am. Margaret ignored him and began setting down small rocks glasses in front of every place setting. It's okay for them to have a little, right? She asked Scully as she placed glasses in front of William and Joy. We're celebrating. Scully nodded and looked at the two teens who were seated next to each other, both looking silently hopeful. It's fine, Mom, she said, and her approval was punctuated with a loud pop as Matthew finally worked the cork out. Once he had poured everyone a small portion, Margaret raised her glass and everyone else followed suit. Now she said, still standing, a proper toast. Scully watched as her mother pressed her hand at the base of her throat, where, in the days before the invasion, she would have been wearing a string of pearls for an occasion such as this. To being reunited with family thought lost, she started, to the memory of those who are no longer with us. With this, she put her hand on Matthew's shoulder and to two brave, extraordinary people who have given us all hope. She looked intently at William and Joy, who both looked a little uncomfortable with the attention, to Joy and William. To Joy and William, Matt, Mulder, and Scully all repeated, and then everyone took a relieved sip. Joy gave a little cough, and Matthew held out a hand and said, Giggle juice can be a bit much. I'll happily finish it for you. Everyone laughed and the tension was eased, and Scully's mother immediately launched into serving everyone heaping plates from the impressive spread on the table. Steaming lasagna with oozing, stringing cheese, garlic bread, a crisp green salad. Everyone marveled and complimented her on the food, but she deferred to her eldest grandson. The food was all Matthew's doing, she said proudly. He's working in one of the cafeterias and was really able to pull some strings. You don't want to know what I had to pull to get this spread, he said, passing the platter of garlic bread over to William. But it wasn't just strings. Once everyone was settled with their plate, Margaret reached her hands out to either side of her. Grace, she said in a matronly way, and everyone joined hands. William, who was sitting next to Scully, had cold fingers but a warm palm, 
and Scully squeezed once and gave him a smile when he looked up at her. Lord, thank you for all of your blessings lately, for which we are eternally grateful, Margaret said. And please bless this food to our use and us to thy service. Amen. Amens were mumbled all around, and then the air was filled with the silence of eating and silverware clinking on china. Scully couldn't remember the last time she'd sat around a table with family and shared a hot meal with actual cuisine. After her final bite, she took a sip of champagne and let the bubbles fizz and zip along her tongue. And when she swallowed, the warmth that spread through her belly seemed to extend all of the way to her soul. This was everything she missed, and when she looked up, Mulder was looking at her with a look of such warm satisfaction and peace that she could feel the burn of tears in the corner of her eyes. So, said her mother, standing up, who is ready for dessert? At that moment, William inhaled a sharp breath and shot up from his seat so fast that the chair he was sitting in fell over backwards. Will? she said, looking at him in concern. She glanced at Joy and saw that the girl was staring at her plate, gripping the table so hard that her fingers were turning white. William? said Margaret, tilting her head curiously. I get excited about dessert, too, said Matt glibly, but Scully could see that a serious look had crossed over his face and his eyes, normally alight with impish mirth, were clouded and dark. William, what is it? Mulder said, and William looked down at Joy, who exchanged a look with him. They're coming, William said, his voice tremulous. Who's coming? Scully asked. Super soldiers, said Joy, her voice like a whisper. How many? Mulder asked grimly. William looked to his father, his face white as a sheet. All of them, he said. Joy knocked on the general's door with a quick rat-a-tat-tat. Sidney answered the door a minute later, dressed for bed, a pair of bifocals perched on the end of his nose. He took one look at Joy, William, Mulder, and Scully standing in the hallway and said, Let me get dressed. He was back at the door less than a minute later, dressed in his full fatigues, and he stepped out into the hallway and began walking toward the command center. What is it? he asked. Super soldiers, sir. Joy said, rushing to keep up with his quick, long strides. Where? Sidney asked, swinging around a corner. It's hard to say, Joy said. I've never felt anything like this. South, William piped up, only a half step behind Joy. Mulder and Scully brought up the rear. The general turned into the control room at full pace, and a young soldier leapt up from his post. Officer on deck. As you were, Sidney barked, moving to the center of the room. I want a live satellite feed on the big screen. The soldiers on duty rushed to their stations if they weren't already there. Sidney turned to William. South of this location? William nodded. How far away? William shook his head. Sidney turned and rattled off latitude and longitude, and a minute later, the big screen in the front of the room populated with a satellite picture of the area near the base. Adjust south a hundred clicks, ordered Sidney, and a moment later the picture adjusted. It's going to be hard picking up anything at night, sir, said a soldier to their right. I'm aware of that, the general said, not taking his eyes off the screen. Okay, give me another forty clicks south, 
The screen adjusted minutely. He leaned forward, and Mulder tried to make out what he was looking at. The picture wasn't zoomed in very close, but something was odd about it. Switch to thermal, Sidney barked, and that's when Mulder's heart went to his throat. On the screen, amidst a large swath of North America that was almost entirely black, was a white and red mass moving incrementally in a northerly direction. Zoom, the general said. The picture adjusted. More. On screen was an absolute mass of super soldiers. Mulder couldn't make them out as individuals, but as a colossal horde, miles long and miles wide. Tens of thousands of them marching steadily north. Holy fucking shit, muttered a soldier. Mulder wasn't sure who said it, because no one could take their eyes off of the large screen at the front of the room, but he had to agree with the sentiment. Someone wake up Carmichael, Sidney said, and I want speed and trajectory calculations. Someone tell me how long until they reach base zero. A beat. Now. We have about 36 hours, said a young female soldier, looking up at the general from a computer screen. Mulder felt Scully slide her hand into his and squeeze it, hard. He chanced to look at her and saw only fear. Peter shuffled into the room, his feet in slippers, sliding one arm into a flannel shirt. What is it? he asked as he fastened the buttons. Mulder could see they were all off by one. Sidney gave him a succinct breakdown. Sweet fancy Jesus, he said, looking up at the screen. But they can't enter the base, he said. The magnetite protects us. Yes, said Sidney, looking grim. But they can surround us, cut off our flow of supplies. It would be a siege, one we would lose. The general heaved a sigh. We'll have to fight them. That many? Scully asked. We have no other choice. General, our magnetite technology is untested, Peter pointed out, and we don't have enough of it. We'll have to make more. As of right now, Base Zero is in condition red. I need a call for civilian volunteers, anyone willing or able to fight. I want Gen 3 weapons in the hands of anyone ex-military or law enforcement. All of those who cannot fight should report to engineering to help make weapons. I want any refugee with a scientific or manufacturing background called up first. We'll need quick and dirty IEDs and as much of the Mag-2 ammunition that we have distributed. Get Base 2 on the horn. See if they can scramble air support. An alarm whooped through the air, and a PA system began announcing the change to the base's condition and a call for civilian volunteers. The voice was calm, but Mulder could feel the tension ratchet up. The general began speaking again. I want team commanders and their XOs in the conference room in ten minutes with topo maps of the entire region. From Mulder's elbow, he heard a quiet, General? He looked over, and Will had taken a step forward. He cleared his throat and spoke louder. General? He said again. General Sidney turned toward him. I want you and Alpha in the conference room as well, Bravo. Ten minutes. When the general turned away, Joy grabbed his elbow. Sir, William has something you need to know. Sidney peered at him curiously. Anytime, son. During the aptitude test, sir, he said, 
There was one you didn't run. I have a power that Joy doesn't, something that will be able to help us. And that would be? Magnetite, sir, William said. I can control it. Sidney crossed his arms over his chest. Control it how? I think I might need to show you. 3508 hours left. Above the conference room table, 40 pounds of magnetite hovered in the air, chipped bits and dust swirling around the center mass of rock like light arcing at the edge of an event horizon. The officers that sat and stood around the conference table watched, some in fascination, some in abject discomfort. Sidney himself was hard to read. How much can you lift? he asked William. I'm not sure. It's finite, but a lot? Can you separate it? If you went down to the mines right now, could you remove the magnetite from the rest of the elemental rock? Yes, William said. That's easy. For the first time, Sidney looked pleased about something. Son, I'm going to need you to go down there as soon as we break here. Okay, said William, and he let the magnetite sample that had been brought up settle gently back onto the table. Now, the general went on, you've said you've killed the metallics with this? William explained how he'd done it, leaving out the part about Dan. We'll need to consider his position on the battlefield, said Sidney, addressing the amassed officers. What's the range of your control over the element? asked Humphreys. Half a mile, maybe? William said, at the most. Get me a geologic survey map, Sidney ordered, and a moment later, one came up on the conference room's big screen. Everyone studied it. We'll need to get him close enough to a reliable surface seam, Humphreys said. Maybe if our forces abut the mountain, she pointed to an area on the map, with Bravo out front. I'll need room to work, William said. I don't want to hurt anyone but the super soldiers. Sidney stood for a moment, just looking at him. We will work around you, he finally said. Tell us what you need, and we will plan around it. William rose from his seat and walked around the table to stand in front of the map. He closed his eyes and felt the massive voids moving steadily towards them. Where, William? General Sidney said, stepping up close to him. Where should we go? Here, William said, pointing to the map. North, he went on. We have to go north of zero. 2603 hours left. William didn't walk back into their suite until well into the night. Scully waited up and pressed a cup of tea into his hand. He tiredly smiled his thanks and then went into his room and shut the door. Scully watched his retreating form, and she thought she finally understood what Mrs. Peacock had told her all those years ago about the enormity of love for one's child. 2246 hours left. She had fallen asleep on the couch and was startled awake when there was a soft knock on the entrance to their suite. She looked over at William's door, and it was closed, the boy still asleep behind it. When she swung their sweet door open, she found her mother standing there, kneading a tissue into shreds. They put out a call for volunteers, her mother said shakily. Matthew was going to fight. Scully ushered her mother through the door and to their sofa. 
I'm not good at this anymore, Dana, she said, sending my men off to war. No one is good at it, Mom, she said. No one should be. What if I lose him? He was all I had left, and then I found you and William again, and I... She took a bracing breath and turned to her daughter. On the wall, she said, in every hallway down on the lower levels, there's a clock. It's counting down the hours until the super soldiers arrive, and it never stops, that clock. Every second brings me closer to losing you all again. Every breath, every step. I know that everything in life changes, especially in wartime. I've been around long enough to know that for a fact. But when your father shipped out, I at least had you kids. But this time, Dana, you will be up there, and I will be down here, and the only constant, level thing I can look to will be that damn clock. Scully leaned in and wrapped her arms around her mother's small frame. As she was sitting there, holding the bird-like wings of her mother's scapulae, Scully wandered into a flash of haptic memory of hugging her mother after her cancer diagnosis. She let herself fall into a shallow pool of remembrance. She thought of the high, grinding whirl of the KitchenAid mixer in her mother's kitchen, the plush, velvety feel of the carpet in her den, the scent of the dogwood just off her mother's porch, everything she thought of that was so quintessentially Margaret Scully. She pulled back. I know it wasn't always easy to be my mother, she said. My choice to enter the FBI and all of the things that happened to me and our family because of that choice. And now that I'm watching my son carry the same weight as Atlas, I... Scully sighed, unable to look her mother in the eye. I'm sorry for what you had to endure. I understand it now. And I'm sorry that you'll have to endure it again. Her mother put a gentle hand under her chin and lifted her face so that she could see her eyes. Dana, you were always a fighter, she said. Oh, how you used to go toe-to-toe with Bill. You'd stomp and rage, and I honestly think he was always a little scared of you. This little scrap of a red-headed thing, raging against a boy four years older and twice your size. And while Bill had the job for fighting, and Charlie had the pluck, you had the heart. I have never encountered a more tenacious soul in my life. I have to think that that's what God put you on this earth to do. To have that child and fight this war. And if I was merely a vessel through which you traveled to get you both to this point in time, then when I meet St. Peter at the gates of heaven, I can tell him that I played my part. And he'll know, and you should too, that I supported you. I always have. Scully tipped forward and held her mother tight. 1523 hours left. Mulder found William pacing the hallway in front of their suite, looking restless and lost. Hey, he said, and the boy looked up, startled. Hey, William said. Mulder was carrying a couple cups of coffee back from the cafeteria. He and Scully had planned to sit down together and try to come up with some sort of plan with how they would handle the various outcomes of the next morning's events, but he decided that that could wait. You all right? Mulder asked. William put his hands in his pockets and shrugged. I don't know what to do with myself. Mulder looked at the boy, the last Mulder, who had never been a Mulder at all. And he could see himself in him, 
in the arc of his jaw, in the shape of his eyes, in the rangy way the boy walked, leading with his hips. He opened the sweet door and set the coffees down, then closed it and turned to his son. Come on, he said, turning to walk back down the hallway from which he'd just come. What? I think we need some fresh air. William stood there for a moment and then trotted to catch up. Is it a... Mulder gestured vaguely around. Everything? Or is this just teenaged ennui? William chuffed a laugh. Teenaged ennui, definitely, he said. Tomorrow will be a piece of cake. Mulder led them through the various levels, making his way to the entrance of the base. William was silent until they approached the large iron door. There were two young soldiers standing guard this time, but after a beat, they stepped aside and let Mulder lead his son out into the air at the base of the mountain. It was golden hour, and the light hit the trees in the valley below with a downy brightness. It was as beautiful an evening as Mulder had ever witnessed. Grandma Scully was here earlier, William said, the name sounding odd coming from the boy's mouth. In our suite, I mean. Oh yeah? Mulder turned from the flat area in front of the base door and noticed a small rocky path that led upwards just to its left. He turned to climb it and William followed. I think she's maybe coming around to this chosen one thing. Don't think that'll get you out of a 6 a.m. roll call into the Christmas tree. William smiled and they found an area that leveled out on a small ridge above the base. The valley and woods beyond spread out below them. They turned to look at the vista. Do you think I'm the chosen one? Mulder stood for a moment, considering his answer. I think you have incredible gifts, Mulder said, and I think they coincide with the timeline wherein humanity desperately needs them. But I don't know that I really believe in a grand purpose, in fate above all else. I think each individual deserves more credit than that. That said... I do think you're the right person, in the right place, at the right time. And while it's an awful lot to fall on the shoulders of a 15-year-old kid, I do think they fell on the right ones. William kept his eyes in front. So I'm peeking early is what you're saying. I'm saying that I think you'll absolutely do right by humanity. I think you'll do right by yourself. And that no matter what happens tomorrow, I'm proud to call you my son and I will be until the day I die. He heard the boy take a breath, drawing the mountain air deep into his lungs. They stood in silence for several long minutes. What's your last name, William? Mulder finally said. I never knew. A small part of him was ashamed of the oversight. A small part of him still didn't want to know. William looked out at the horizon at the scope and breadth of the world he would have to save. A child of fifteen, whose chest was only just filling out, whose voice had deepened only in the last few months, and replied, Does it matter? To the scholars and the historians, it probably will. There was a sound behind them, the slightest scratch of a heel turning on gravel, and Mulder turned to see Joy standing off of a spare bit of shale by the edge of the path. She was holding her small wing-like elbow in a delicate hand, 
looking at William with a longing he recognized in his own lovesick heart. He suddenly had the urge to find Scully, to bury his face in the skin of her lily-white neck. Instead, he looked back to their son. If there ends up being a history at all, William said, finally turning to his father, I think I should get to decide. William had grown up since Scully had found him on a ridge in their hunting grounds, Mulder decided. Not so much older, but wiser, harder, now armored with the quiet kind of knowledge that sneaks up on you and grabs you by the neck. Mulder tried to think of the boy who had frolicked in a field with Tisdale, who had joyfully pulled fish up out of the ice. He wasn't a boy anymore, Mulder thought. He'd never be a boy again. When tomorrow comes, he said, reaching out and running his fingers through the feathered ducktail of William's coppery locks, we'll be right beside you. He pulled the young man in and placed a gentle kiss to his forehead, and Mulder could feel it and Mulder could feel the fan of his son's humid breath on his jugular notch. Then Mulder turned and headed back down the path, reaching out to brush his fingers along Joy's sleeve as he walked by, passing his son's care into her hopeful, innocent hands. William could hear his father make his way down the path back to base, but he knew he wasn't alone. Someone send you along to make sure I didn't run off? It wasn't a fair thing to say, but he couldn't help but lash out, only a little. The fear and anticipation had hollowed him out until he felt like only an outline of himself, a memento pinned to the wall like a Hiroshima shadow. I thought we might run away together, Joy said. Fuck him. At this, William turned to her in surprise. She stood a little ways off the path, looking at him with a small smile on her face. Don't tempt me, he said turning back to look at the valley and gesturing to his feet. I'm a man on a ledge. He felt her approach and stand next to him, her sleeve just brushing his. William, she started, but he cut her off. No, I, I wouldn't. I won't. That's not what I was going to say. When he looked at her again, her upturned face was shy but hopeful, and he felt something spark inside his chest. He spread one arm wide in invitation, and Joy tucked herself into his side. The outside of her jacket was cold, and she smelled like the night. He pulled her in close and felt her arms wrap around his waist, and underneath the fear and the dull panic, he felt a small thrill. If his heart was a smoldering orange coal, she was the breath that kept it lit. We're crossing the Rubicon, he said. Yeah. I wish you could help me. I will. I'll be right next to you. You know what I mean. She sighed and turned a little in his arms so that she was facing him. He had to look down. It was always going to end like this, she said. You know that as well as I do. But now... It didn't feel fair. He leaned his head down, resting his forehead against hers. I've only just found you. Joy slowly rose onto her toes and pressed a warm, soft kiss to his lips. It was his first. You said the magnetite speaks to you, right? She said when she pulled away. 
It took him a minute to compose a response, and even then it was only the nod of his head. And what is it saying to you, right now? William looked back and forth between her eyes and then knelt upon the ground. William looked back and forth between her eyes and then knelt upon the ground. He held out a hand and asked a question. He felt the earth respond. I'm ready, he said, looking up. Zero, 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 eight hours left. Mulder stood at the ready along with the other fighters that General Sidney had amassed. There were over a thousand spread along the front of the ridge north of the base, hundreds of clumps of a dozen people spread over a mile of land. The base behind them and a long field stretched out to the horizon in front. William, who stood at the center of the fighting force, had chosen well. The magnetite of the mountain wherein Base Zero was housed would keep the super-soldiers off of their rear, so that when they came, they would have to stream around the sides of the mountain and approach the fighters from the front. The geography of the area such that the fighters' flanks were also protected. In amongst the fighting force were spread the military, with two groups of special forces on either side of William and Joy, who were tasked with protecting the two teens, whose job it would be to wield the vast stores of magnetite that were buried in the hills behind them. William would call it up from the earth, and, theoretically, Joy would help him sling it. Everyone else was armed with guns and magnetite ammo and throwable IEDs filled with the element that should render the approaching super-soldiers to dust. They'd been given other various weapons, including magnetite-infused knives, but if the enemy got close enough for them to use them, their cause was all but lost anyway. Mulder ran a hand over a sweaty lip, looking over William to where Scully stood on his other side, one of the larger Gatling guns held at the ready. He had tried to talk her into staying back at the base with those who could not fight, but she'd refused, as he knew she would, and had told Sidney in no uncertain terms where she would be located on the field of battle next to her son, next to Mulder. The super-soldier force was maybe ten minutes out, according to the math, and if you paid attention, you could feel the slight rumble in the ground of the untold number of feet marching steadily toward them. The anticipation was killing him. Mulder felt a keen sense of lachicism. He almost longed for the clarity delivered by disaster, the singular, shocking pleasure of doom, Anything was better than waiting for death to come, and when he finally saw the invading force wending their way over the distant hillsides, he thought that perhaps doom was the right word. It must have been like what Leonidas and the other 300 Spartans had seen when they saw the full might of the Persian army wending towards them at Thermopylae. It wasn't just a mass of super-soldiers coming toward them, but a wall, a front, Tens of thousands of beings who had once been people sweeping towards them like a hurricane approaching a beach. He could hear swearing and prayers, whimpers and breaths, and one or two shots from the guns of fighters who couldn't hold their nerve. Are you ready? he heard his son ask Joy. Yes, she said, and he watched as the two teens stood strong in the face of overwhelming odds feet braced, their hands out. 
ready to wield the odd power they were born with to save humanity or die trying. The enemy was upon them. Zero zero thirty five. William did not have the time or energy to think or worry or feel. The battle hadn't been raging long, but already the fighters from Zero were losing it. The super soldiers were coming at the ragtag force far faster than they could be taken out. It was as if a horde of locusts had descended on what remained of humanity to pick their bones clean. There was the constant prattle of gunfire, one IED explosion after another, super soldiers turning to dust so quickly that every fighter on the battlefield looked like they were covered in a layer of ash. And still, they came. William was bringing up metric tons of magnetite from the ground, and he and Joy were slinging it in vast swaths through the endless line of troops in front of them. But it was only buying them time. This couldn't last. Whatever hope they had that morning was spent, trampled into the ground like a daisy beneath a boot. The world around them was nothing but shades of gray and black. He coughed once on the dust. It was in his mouth and up his nose, and as he expelled it, time slowed. To his right, his mother had a large gun that was spraying forth magnetite bullets in a never-ending half-arc, holding off the wall of soldiers coming at them, but only just. To his left, the line was beginning to break. He saw Peter with one of the massive next-gen Gatling guns run out of ammo. A super soldier came at him, his hand like a knife, and Peter grabbed the gun he was holding by the barrel and swung it up with such force that the super soldier's head whipped back and he flew into the enemy soldier's feet, ten feet behind him. It only took a minute, however, for his place to be filled, and William saw with detached horror as the soldier put a hand through Peter's enormous neck, and he crumpled to the ground. William's father, standing next to him, lunged up with one of the magnetite-infused combat knives, and the soldier who had felled Peter vaporized. A second later, another soldier stepped in, and Mulder fell as well, an arc of blood spraying the air where he had not a moment before been standing tall. William saw Joy dive for the men, everything still moving in slow motion. He turned his head back to the front. Standing before him, like a tree in the middle of a river's current, was a young woman not more than 16 or 17 years of age. Her hair was auburn, streaked with the dust of her atomized compatriots, and she wore a pink hooded sweatshirt with a pair of bootcut jeans, stained at the knee with grass. In her hand was a baseball bat. Dan? He said into the molasses strip of time, the name on his lip sounding hollow and as stretched out as taffy. The super soldier before him cocked her head to the side and shifted her gaze to where Joy kneeled on the ground, her eyes closed, her hands resting the temples of William's father. Dan took a step forward and raised the bat. His hands shook as he held them out to the side and summoned forth an arrow of magnetite, no more than would take to fill a teacup sending it into the forehead of the girl who had been his only friend. She burst into dust, just as a cool breeze whipped through the battlefield, and she was carried off into nothingness. For a moment, time stopped. 
It was as quiet as the silence before creation. William remembered the feeling he had on the preacher's ship when his mother lay choking on her own blood, the incandescent rage that had come from within his chest and flowed to his fingers and hands, peeling apart the hard metallic alloys of the ship like they were no more than tissue paper. What he felt now was so much more powerful and intense that it felt like a vibrating psychosis, needles along his skin, rising up and through him like a tsunami taking a beach. He called forth a force so potent that it would have torn any other person on earth in two. But instead of destroying him, the power itself cleansed him. The elements of the earth that answered his call were a pumice to his heart, distilling his essence to its purest form. If the soldiers before him were dark, he was light. If they were hate, he was love. He was everything they ever were in their life, and he would be the death that sent their souls home. The ammo in Scully's Gatling gun was nearly out. It would only be a matter of seconds before she and every other human fighter with their backs to base zero were overwhelmed by the invading force. She thought of her mother, waiting in a small room beneath a mountain, rosary beads clutched in her hands. She thought of the pain of childbirth, of the coursing flow of love that followed it. She thought of Mulder's eyes in the night and the way the color of his irises would shift when he was deep in the cradle of her hips. And then the ground beneath Scully's feet shook, as if a beast was erupting from the bowels of the earth. She only had time to glance to her left to see Joy dive toward William and take his hand before the world itself seemed to implode. There was a massive reverberation, and then above them, everything went dark. When she looked up to see what had blocked the sun, she saw nothing but a dark wall of stone, miles wide and long, rushing through the air over their heads, and then careening down until it blasted into the line of super-soldiers in a tremendous conflagration of rock and debris. The sound was like an atomic bomb going off. Scully slammed her eyes shut and covered her ears, falling to her knees. Untold seconds or minutes or hours later, it was over. She blinked and lowered her hands, dust falling out of her hair and onto the already thick layer at her feet. She glanced over and William and Joy were still standing there, hands linked, breathing hard, both of their heads lowered in exhaustion or defeat or some other unnamed emotion Scully could scarcely bring herself to name. To their left, Mulder sat propping himself up on one arm, shaking his dusty head as if he'd just woken up from a trance. Next to him, the enormous crumpled body of Peter Carmichael lay still and silent. All around them were the fallen bodies of comrades and refugees, and amongst them stood the shell-shocked fighters who had survived. The entire field before them was empty, but for a dust devil blowing west to east, swirling what remained of their enemy up beyond the surly bonds of the earth and into the heavens from which their destruction had both come and gone. William had to shove the door hard with his shoulder. It had been a damp summer, and the door itself, he was happy to see, hadn't been touched in a few years. This is it he said, smiling behind him. 
The little cabin had weathered the end and beginning of the world with robust cheerfulness, its windows reflecting the brownish green of the lake out front with watery solemnity, and the inside of the small house was dry and quiet, each piece of furniture and all their various knick-knacks sitting exactly where they'd left them. "'Aren't you going to carry me over the threshold?' Joy asked. "'I would, but I don't want to throw out my back.' "'Kids,' said Scully, issuing a stern warning. "'I don't think you can call them kids anymore, Scully,' said Mulder, bringing up the rear, his arms laden with food and supplies. William reached back and took Joy's hand, leading her into the kitchen with a wink and a smile. "'Come to the window,' he said, pulling her into the living room so that they could look out and onto Green Lake. "'You gotta see the view.' His parents ducked back out to unsaddle the horses and give them some privacy, their timing fairly conspicuous. Joy moved to stand in front of the big windows and took a deep breath, watching the gentle ripples of the water undulate along the lake's surface. William took advantage of their seclusion and moved to stand behind her, wrapping his arms around her waist and pulling her in tight. I was thinking he said into her ear as she brought both of her arms up to cover his. We could build our own cabin on the lot next door. There's a little grove of poplar trees in between there and here, just enough so we'd have a little privacy. Joy inhaled again and thunked her head back so that it rested on his shoulder. I think that sounds like heaven, she said. William Mulder took a moment to reflect on how far they'd come. Maybe it was surprising, but he didn't often think of the battle north of Zero. Today, however, standing in the one place in the world where he'd always felt safe and at home, he did. He thought of the people they'd lost and couldn't save. He thought of his grandmother and the others who had been deep below the earth, shrouded in the velvety darkness of soil and stone, not knowing whether they would ever see the sun again. He thought of joy on the battlefield, choosing to save Mulder's life over Peter Carmichael's, a man who had been like a father to her, because she only had time to save one. He thought of the zealot Elaine and the way her gun trembled when she held it. He thought of his cousin Matthew, how he'd come up to him after the battle and put his hand on William's shoulder, the impish glint in his eye as dull as an old penny. The cover of the hemlocks above the cabin waved thickly in the breeze off the lake waving shadows onto the weedy yard in front of them. It's just like you said it would be, Joy said, squeezing his arm. I don't feel anything here but peace. He pressed a hand to the window and felt the cool glass press back. They had given all they could, all they had to the outstretched hands of humanity, and had earned a long-awaited rest. For the rest of their days they had no plans but to live a quiet life a settled life, a life beyond the reach of fear or judgment or regret. Their service had ended. Their lives had begun. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month, 
That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.